Dawning. There are hours when everything creaks, when chairs stretch their arms, tables their legs, and closets crack their backs incautiously. Fed up with the polite fantasy of having to stay in one place and stick to their stations. Humans, too, at work or in love, know such aches and growing pains. When inner furnishings defiantly shift, as decisively and imperceptibly as a continent, something will give, croak, or come undone, so that everything else must be reconsidered. One restless dawn, unable to suppress the itch of wanderlust, with a heavy door left ajar, semi-deliberately, and a new light teasing in. Some piece of immobility will finally quit, suddenly nimble on wooden limbs, as fast as a horse fleeing the stable. Yahya Lababidi, BA, George Washington University, is a critically acclaimed poet, aphorist, and public intellectual. His work has appeared in film, on radio, and in numerous popular periodicals and anthologies. The author of six volumes of poetry and prose, Lababidi's latest book, Balancing Acts, New and Selected Poems, 1993-2015, Press 53-2016, debuted at number one on Amazon's hot new releases under Middle Eastern poetry. Twice nominated for a Bushcart Prize, Lababidi was chosen as a juror for the 2012 Neustadt International Prize for Literature. He has been featured on NBR, Best American Poetry, World Literature Today, The Guardian, Al Jazeera, and elsewhere. Charles D. Nior, poet laureate of Vermont, has described his work as resonates in a plain spoken yet dazzling poetry, sometimes epigrammatic, sometimes expansive, that betrays the eclectic transmissions of his myriad influences from Rumi to Kierkegaard, Dickinson to Kafka. Lababidi's writing has been translated into several languages, including his native Arabic. I would like to welcome you first, and I am very glad to do this, to welcome you in an interview for our audio magazine Status. So welcome, and we are really happy to host you. Thank you very much, Osama. It's an honor. I'm very happy to be speaking to you because you are, of course, the the latest and the most uh, clear, in my understanding, translator in uh, in Arabic of my work. So that's that's a big privilege for me. Thank you so much. You know, I I would like to ask you first about why did you write in English? Did you have the choice to write in Arabic at the beginning? I, I'm, I'm ashamed to admit that it's not entirely a matter of choice. I speak Arabic fluently. My, my, my mother is Egyptian. My father is Lebanese. We speak Arabic at home. But I never formally studied Arabic. I went to American schools, and uh, when it was time to choose a foreign language, I thought, I speak Arabic. I'll, I'll study French. I never learned to write Arabic. 
So um, it, it isn't it isn't really a choice in the matter. I did have a tutor at some point, but um, I, I my the, the language that I express myself most naturally is English. How did the story of the poet Yahya Lababidi start? What attracted him to poetry and inspired him to become a poet? Were there any influences he would like to talk about? I think the story started with growing up in a household where we, uh, my parents had a literary salon. So we would have people like Yusuf Idris, uh, Louis Awad, Ahmed Ragab, uh, you know, luminaries from my part of the world. I didn't quite know I wanted to be a writer, but I, I grew up in that atmosphere. On my father's side, I am named after his father, who's Yahya Lababidi, who was a musician and a poet. He wrote for Farid Latrash, Ya Ritni Tir Latir Hawalik. I didn't know him. He died when my father was young, but I think these things are transmitted maybe uh, in the bloodstream. So I grew up in a family that encouraged uh, literature. My uh, father had it in his in his background, and I was a reader. You know, I, I I was encouraged to read, and really as a young man, reading meant everything to me. It was escape. It was education. It was friendship. Uh, influences is a huge question. I wouldn't know where to begin. Gobran, Gobran was an early influence, of course, with my Lebanese background. Uh, in my teens, I was reading Gobran, but I was also reading T.S. Eliot and Dostoevsky and Wilde and Nietzsche, a, a, a bunch of writers uh, over the years. And, and the influences, of course, keep changing with every stage in one's life. Okay. Each poet has his her own vision. Or let me say, color. What is your color as a poet? How can you divine your poetic difference from other poets? That's a, a wonderful and imaginative question. Color, I would say, um, if I had to choose one now, uh, maybe a lavender. There's something about that color. It's. Um, I would like to think that uh, that my my poetry is now um, as much as possible concerned with bringing in more light than dark. And there's something about that color for me that's uh, soothing. What defines my poetic difference? Possibly that I started off more interested in philosophy. So I, I'm more mind-based. Uh, possibly that I am someone who values aphorisms. So I value brevity. Uh, so I think a combination of these things, the fact that I come, uh, I'm, I'm a, po a poet who also values prose and, 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 and the life of the mind, and then uh, who, who appreciates writing uh, compactly or intensely. So I think all of these are, are factors that may contribute to wh whatever uh, unique uh, voice I may have. Once you said, I read to get a drunk. What kind of poets that intoxicates you? Yes, the, the drunkards. The drunk <laughs> poets are the ones I like best. I, as a as a young man, as a young man, well, the the the, the quotation is from um, Baudelaire, who talks about, you know, his advice is is one should be drunken always on 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 wine, on on virtue, on on women, whatever it is at the time. As a young man, that appealed to me very much. I still believe one should be drunken, but maybe I I think one should be drunk with other things than I believed what. Uh, than I believed when I was a teenager. So now, maybe from Baudelaire, I graduated to Rilke. From Rilke, I graduated to Rumi. Um, but still, I value that state where, uh, you know, in, in drunkenness, there is an increased clarity. You, you leave yourself. 
all things are possible. According to you, words have a life of their own and ultimately choose the form they want to address the world in, which means ideas dress themselves and the poet is a helpless tailor. Can you talk more about this helpless tailor and the process of poetic creativity? Yeah, I think even hearing myself answering your questions, I, I've, I've said more than once, possibly more than twice, it's not my choice. I, I feel this is very much the case with, with poetry as well. There's very, um, there's very little I, I have to say in the matter, and this is not false humility, this is, as I understand it, just honesty. The ideas themselves, the images, the, the thoughts, whatever you want to call them, I think they have their own life and they choose the form. So for a while, for example, essays made more sense. Uh, at another time, poetry, at another time, aphorisms, etc. What I can do is I can be ready, you know, sitting at my work table with my scissors out, the cloth out, the needles Uh, maybe a good night's sleep, and and when it and when I have work to do, when it's put on my table, I can honor this work, and and try to just do the little details, the the finishing touches, to present it in its best light. But I I really don't think that I can sit, and write on command. It's not. This is not my experience. Perhaps it's the experience of other poets. Um, so so for me, the work is invisible work. The work is making myself ready. so that when work does arrive, I can do it justice. As a poet, what kind of heavies you wrestle when you write? And once the poem is achieved, how do you define it as a poem? What should a poem contain so we can say about it, this is really poetry? Those are, those are many good questions. Uh, to begin with, what do I, what do I wrestle with? I think, I think they, they're existential questions. The idea of, again, ensuring that I, as a vehicle, as a, as a person, is, is ready and equal to the work. So you, one wrestles with staying alive and staying positive and, and keeping your mind and heart open to the world and its, and its suffering that, that, that you are surrounded with. Um, when the poem presents itself, I, I, I think of Robert Frost, and, and I, I, like, I like his definition. Uh, because it's very ambiguous and it's very hard to put in words. He says, a poem begins as a lump in the throat, a sense of wrong, a homesickness, a lovesickness. I think poetry, I, I, I couldn't think of better words to describe how a poem begins uh, or what a poem is than those words. So when I have this feeling, this lump in the throat, the sense of wrong, homesickness or lovesickness, I begin to think something, I may have something to say. I, ha I have to clear my throat because I may have something to say. If the poem is developed, if I am ready, if I have something to say, I believe that I begin to just take notes. Uh, at some point, if I'm having too hard a time writing the poem, I tell myself the poem is not ready and I should just wait uh, and, and it, it will let me know. When I have when I have to be uh, when when I have to sit down and write this. In a previous interview, you quoted your favorite novelist John Banville as saying, "This is what good art does. It takes a pebble in the road or a human being, and it concentrates on them until they begin to glow." Is that what you do towards? 
That's what I hope to do. I think with 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 poetry and art, possibly uh, uh, in general, it's a question of attention. It's a matter of love, and I think a combination of of great attention and love will reveal secrets. So if if we look at things with this intense gaze that Banville is talking about, things open themselves up for us the way people do. The way when you look at someone that you love with all of your attention deeply, you know who they are. They show you who they are. I think it's the same with life. I think it's the same with all living things and with 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 secret matters that that don't we cannot put in words. Arab mystic or Sufi poets like Muhammad bin Abdul Jabbar and Nifari influenced modern Arabic poetry on the level of inspiring poets to write in a way that it challenges poetic traditions. This helped also to enhance the status of the prose poem. In this approach, mysticism was not a spiritual adventure for poets, but they drew on Sufi writings because of their different style and there was a need for this to support the legitimacy of the prose poem in the face of traditional forms and taste. What is about mysticism and its influence on you and some other American poets? What did attract you to mysticism on the level of poetic expression? Or, in other words, how can mysticism illuminate the path of poetry for you? Again, my friend, a huge question that has to do more with the life and the, 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 inner, the inner work than the outer work. I will begin by telling you that uh, mysticism for me is very little to do with style and very much to do with a spiritual adventure. Uh, I will also say that it is not a choice. The last thing I would have imagined when I began writing, when I was very much under the influence of existentialists like Nietzsche and all of these rebels and troublemakers, the last thing I would imagine is that I would find myself here where I am today uh, interested or flirting with, with spirituality or mysticism. I think something happens uh, in one's development, something, someone taps on your shoulder, something, some inner law or, or what you call a spiritual adventure takes place. And, and I find that after all, you know, all, all the adventuring that I've been doing, I'm still standing at the very shore and in front of me is a great unexplored sea. Um, Rumi, at the height of his powers as a poet, says this astonishing line. He says, he says what is my concern with poetry? In comparison to the true reality, I have no time for poetry. It's the only nutrition my visitors can accept. Can accept. So like a good host, I offer them poetry. I, 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 I'm obviously in no place uh, to compare myself with Rumi, but the sentiment, he says, I relate to. And, and if you allow me, there's a poem, that, uh, a short poem that I have that answers this question probably better than all of my uh, random words. It's, call, it's called Arrivals. I don't quite know how it occurred that this great fish has appeared, almost fully formed, it seemed, to crowd all else in my aquarium. Perhaps this creature of the depths always was, just out of sight, secretly feeding on hidden longing, and now demands acknowledging. With the swish of a majestic tail, it's upset my incidental decor. Gone the rubber diver 
and the plastic treasure, the glass frame itself can't be far behind. Finally, I would like to, to know what does the poet like to say about our times of a crisis? We live in continuous cycles of violence, phobia, closed nationalism, extremism, racism, sectarianism, and rejection of the other or, or fear of the other. How can a poet be useful in such times? You said once that you came to realize that the role of poetry in times of a crisis is vision. What does a poetic vision tell us in such times when politicians and the traders play with the destiny of a human being in cold blood? Yeah, these are, these are questions that I ask myself more and more every day, especially, specifically, specifically what is the role of the poet in times of crisis. You know, beginning to write as a young man in, in, my, in my teens, I, was, I, was, I would identify myself as an apolitical creature, someone who is not concerned with politics, but concerned with, with let's say, uh, what I thought were deeper realities. Now I know that uh, in, in this world that we live in, uh, at this historical moment, as, as a semi-adult, I'd like to think of myself approaching that, I, you can't afford to look away. So, so when I say vision, I think that poetry, at its finest, at its very finest, um, can, can see over the head of the immediate moment. So there is the moment, and the moment is almost like you're standing up against the book or up against the television. If you're too close, you don't see. But if you step back just a little bit, not too far away, because you're, you're, you're needed on the battlefield, you're needed to see and to hear and to give voice to the people without a voice and to bear witness. But, but you do need a little bit of distance to have a little bit of vision to see what is the spiritual reality of this moment. Meaning where, where, has, where have we come from? Where are we going? And I think that what the poet is called upon or the artist or the, or the writer at this time is really to be a witness and an activist in, in as much in as much um, of a way that they think is 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 uh, fair, because I think that poorly digested politics makes for bad art. I think you can be a journalist who covers every hour what it, breaking news. I think it's harder to do that in poetry, because because poetry is trying to tease out some some larger truth. So so for for my part, uh, Osama, these days. I've been asking myself this question, and, and some of the answers I've come up with uh, are, are a kind of literary activism. I'm, I'm working on three projects now, for example. Uh, one of them was an anthology called Truth to Power, and, and this was recently published by Pam Ushuk uh, uh, with Cutthroat Journal, and it's, it's different poets who are basically trying to, to address what they consider the gross uh, injustices of, of a Trump a campaign and presidency. And of course, Trump is, is not just America. The whole world is suffering, uh, you know, uh, uh, whether we're talking about the great moral crisis of our time in Syria or we're talking about, uh, you know, my, our, our, our uh, small revolution in comparison in Egypt, but also uh, immigrants, refugees all over the world, uh, we're all interconnected. So I feel like with someone like Trump, at, at this time, for me, as, as an immigrant and as a Muslim and as a poet, one has to be more engaged. So the anthology is one way of doing it. Another project I'm working on with a, with a director is a short 
film about what it means to be a global citizen. And, and this idea of we, we are all connected, we all suffer. If, if we turn our backs, uh, we cannot live in peace while the whole world is essentially uh, uh, met with, uh, with, with injustice and, and apathy. And finally, a, a, a last project that I'm working on, which is not directly related to politics, but I think also uh, is of some small help, is um, for an international literary magazine, I will be, uh, I've been asked to guest edit a special issue or a special section on belief and the role of belief or faith in an age of intolerance. So how, how are we able as, as poets uh, or writers or essayists or novelists to address uh, the role of spirituality or, or the role of the, the divine in our art in such a manner that gives us guidance and and uh, is morally uplifting. So these are all things that that are that are that are sort of on my mind. I'm still wrestling with these questions. You 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 inspired me to ask you another question. Please go ahead. In your own opinion, what does it mean to be a global citizen now, and how can we? change belief and make it more open, more human, more acceptable of the other? That's, that's really something. I mean, I, I, I am fortunate I'm growing up in, in, in Egypt at a time when we were open to the world. Uh, we had our problems. We were living in a police state under Mubarak, but tourism was the lifeblood of our country. I went to American schools. Uh, Alexandria was an international community. Cairo, likewise. Uh, What it means to be a global citizen now is to recognize that when we close our doors to others, when we close our hearts to others, we are less, we, 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 are, we are diminished, we are, we are smaller, and we are not all that we can be. So, so the, the idea to recognize, for example, if we are living in America, that the strengths of America are founded upon the strengths of others of people who are from different places, different cultures, different faiths, and they know things we don't know. People who travel, people who live in other countries are aware of this. It also means that, the, that if I am comfortable and well-fed and I have a roof over my head, it is no excuse for me to you know, turn my back on, on everyone else and, uh, you know, and, and, and amuse myself to death with, with, with television or, 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 or a lifestyle that doesn't acknowledge the realities of the world that we live in. So, so the fact is, we are connected. Um, we see these places happening, uh, the, the tragedies happening in far uh, uh, places in the world, and we think, how are we connected? Well, as Americans, uh, people can see the connection very easily because American politics, for example, are very much involved in the politics of third world countries. Uh, people are scandalized that Russia may have influenced American politics. Well, American politics influence Middle Eastern politics all the time by, by interfering with who we elect, by, by propping up dictators, by actually being on the ground in, in the form of invasions that they call wars, that they call... So we are all connected. So we cannot say, oh, this is their problem and we have nothing to do with it. Uh, I think more than ever now, we have to realize that whatever Trump and, and, and what's happening in Europe and what's happening in our part of the world represents, it's all connected, and we all have to recognize that if we don't solve it, we all suffer. What is about belief? Belief is huge. Belief is huge because belief is something that 
that has many names. I mean, the, the idea is we are we are not saying uh, that 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 any kind of violence is permissible. We're saying that violence is heresy. Once you speak a violent word, once you do a violent action, then this does not fall under belief. This falls under heresy. Belief, as I understand it, as I understand it, is, is love, is the language of love. And the language of love is the language of tolerance. And I is, agree is, with you. And, and anything else, anything else has to be called other than belief. I cannot call myself a Christian, a Muslim, a Jew, a Buddhist, and, and be violent in words or actions, or th then, then I, I have disqualified myself. That is true. Thank you, sir. I think, I think since we've been talking about the, this idea of a global citizen and our allegiances to one another, I think I'll read one that um, is addressed to the terrorists. And by terrorists, I'm also including governments and nation states. It begins with a Nietzsche quote. He who fights monsters should see to it that in the process, he does not become a monster. Tell me, what steel entered your heart? What fear made you rabid? What hate drove out pity? How could you forget that how we fight a battle determines who we become? When did you grow reckless with the state of your soul? We are responsible for our enemy. Compassion is to consider the role that we play in their creation. If you prick us, do we not bleed? If you poison us, do we not die? And if you wrong us, shall we not revenge? Strange, how one hate enables another, how they are like unconscious allies, darkly united in blocking out the light. Yes, we can lend our ideas, our breath, but ideals, peace, justice, freedom, require our entire lives. And all who are tormented by such ideals must learn to make an ally of humility. Truth and conscience can be like large, bothersome flies. Brush them away, and they return buzzing louder. To speak nothing of the intangible casualties, damage done to our collective psyche, trust and sleep. No more nightmares, please. Give us back our dreams. We can still begin again and must. Wisdom is a return to innocence. So this is one. This is one. I'm, I'm wondering what else I might read. I, I have another one, if you have time for one more. Of course we have. All right. So this is, this is called Speaking American. And this is, this is written a, a few years ago, but I, but I feel it's, it, it applies again now uh, that America is having this, this moral crisis they seem to be having under, under, under Trump. Um, it begins with a Shakespeare uh, uh, quote, and the quote is, Oh, it is excellent to have a giant's strength, but it is tyrannous to use it like a giant. I'm learning to speak American. I thought I had it ages ago, but the dialect throws me off, each like a language in itself. There's the official tongue addressed to the better angels of our nature the huddled masses all yearning to breathe free. But no one speaks such Shakespearean English in the streets. There, you are treated to a more familiar manner of speech. 
the unguarded snarl known as slang. Unlike the poetic flourish on its tiptoes, this dialect is flat-footed and suspicious of the very tired and the poor that it invites, preferring the right to bear arms in bars, stray violence or casual hate of shifting shapes, racial slur, ethnic insult, or what specialists term linguistic xenophobia. You fill in the blanks, I'd rather not. I'm learning that this fickle colossus and the big friendly giant are one. So if you want to run with either, best to watch, both don't squash you. Having made a show of separating church and state, they still bless you at every turn, but will also curse you if you do not bless their troops in return. So that's another one. <laughs> There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Can we please conclude with your Cairo poem? I was just about to ask you if I can read that one specifically. Yes, sir. I, yeah. That's the yeah. one that I wanted to, to finish with. Uh, so th this is this is because we all we all in the end long for for our home whatever home means. So this is this is my poem to Cairo. I've been again living here for 11 years, and this is my love letter to home. Cairo, I buried your face someplace by the side of the new road, so I wouldn't trip over it every morning or on evening strolls. Still. I am helplessly drawn to the scene of this crime for fear of forgetting the sum of your splendor. Then there's also the rain that loosens the soil to reveal a bewitching feature awash with emotion. An eye, perhaps tender, or a pale, becalmed cheek. A mouth, tight with reproach, or lips, pursed in a deathless smile. Other times you are inscrutable. Worse is when I seem to lose you and pick at the earth like a scab, frantic and faithful like a dog. All right, sir. That's that's it. That's thank you. Thank you very much thank for all you. that. Yahya Lababidi, the poet, the aphorist, the mystic, and the singer. Thank you for illuminating us. I am. Osama Esber, and I would like to thank you in the name of Status. We are very appreciative for you being with us. Thank you very much. Bless your heart, Osama, and, and, and thank you for this opportunity to unburden myself. I think when, when, we, share, when we share all of what we're carrying inside, we all realize it's, it's not very different in the end. Yeah.